Good morning, I'm Jim Jeffrey, one of the pastors here at Chapel Point, and we are jumping into the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews focuses on Christ being the perfect one, Christ being the one who is better than any that could compare it to him, the one who is superior to all. And uh, we, in the last two weeks, have looked at how Christ is actually better in the revelation, the self-disclosure of God to mankind, how he's better than angels because he himself is the Son of God. So join with me as we look at Hebrews chapter 2, and I want to read for you the first four verses. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those that heard. Well, God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, distributing according to his own will. The author of Hebrews here is going to focus on how Christ is providing a better salvation. He actually says in verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? And the word great is a word of comparison. It's saying it is greater in dimension, it is greater in size, it is greater in significance. That the salvation that Jesus provides is greater than anyone or anything that could compare to him. You know, we sometimes compare products and we say, well, this is good, this is better, and this is best. If you've ever gone on a website to book a hotel room, they actually have the, the five-star rating of what that hotel room's like. And this was good, this is better, and this is best. But when it comes to salvation, friends, we need to have the best to, to make sure that the one that we're trusting in to provide for the deliverance of our soul from sin and its consequences, we can only trust in the one who is the best. We heard the, the Harris's story of transformation. What a great story of God changing hearts, changing marriage, and changing a home. And we believe that God can redeem anyone from anything at any time. Do you believe that? God can do that. We, we believe that. So he starts off in verse 1. He says, therefore, and he ties back to verse 14 of chapter 1 when he talks about the angels that are serving those that will inherit salvation. So now he draws that forward when he talks about this great salvation that we have in Jesus. Really, verses 1 to 4 are a warning passage. So you could just kind of say this is a flashing sign from the text of the Bible saying, warning. If you've driven this summer down on 196 going towards Grand Rapids, you see multiple warning signs. Matter of fact, I measured the other day, every mile there is a warning sign from about three miles out. Warning the road is closed at 131. And they have another warning sign, and another warning sign, and then there's a flashing sign, and, and then if you keep on driving, you're going to come to some barricades, and, and the idea is, warning, don't keep driving. This would be extremely dangerous for you in your car. You will have a new form of baptism when you go into the river. Don't do that, okay? Warning. And it's interesting, in the book of Hebrews, we have five warning passages throughout the book, and this is the first of those. He's saying, warning, be careful here. You need to pay close attention. You need to focus your mind on the message you have heard. He's talking about the message of the gospel, the message of salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. He said, lest we drift away from it. 
That's a nautical term that's only used here in the entire New Testament. He's talking about a sailing vessel that misses the harbor and is carried away by the current. He's saying, warning, don't get carried away with false teaching. Don't get carried away, in this case, with these Jewish believers going back into Judaism rather than in Christianity. He's warning, don't get, don't get drifted along with this. And so we need to pay attention, he's saying, and not drift away. Then he says, uh, the message declared by angels. It's interesting, in the, in the passage uh, that we saw last week, angels are mentioned repeatedly. In this uh, section, chapter 2, verses 1 to 9, you'll find angels are mentioned another four times. He, he's really, really fighting against the idea in Judaism that Jesus was simply something other than an angel or less than an angel. And he's saying, no, listen, this message declared by angels proved to be reliable. What's he talking about? He's talking about the Old Testament law. He's talking about Mount Sinai. He's comparing the law of Moses to the gospel of Christ. And he says, listen, don't drift past this because in, the, in that law of Moses, every transgression, every missing of the mark, and every disobedience, every violation of God's authority brought about punishment, brought about a just retribution. At the base of Mount Sinai, when Aaron and the others were there, and Moses is up on the mountain, and they get involved in idolatry, and create the, the calf as a god, God then judges them, and 3,000 people died at the base of Mount Sinai. He's saying, listen, their disobedience brought about a retribution. It's a warning. It's a warning. He said, how shall we escape? How shall we be delivered, he said, if we, if we don't avoid the danger that would be ours if we neglect such a great salvation? If we don't pay attention to the message of Christ and the person of Christ and what he did in the gospel. There is, friends, a real warning that is given here. This is something you don't want to drift past because the true harbor for your soul and the anchor for your soul is Jesus alone. Don't drift past this. Don't miss this, he's saying. Warning, warning, warning. It's interesting that the, um, the Old Testament law were told repeatedly in the scriptures that angels were involved in that. For instance, in Stephen's sermon in Acts 7.53, you who received the law as delivered by angels, they didn't keep it. Paul in Galatians says a similar thing in Galatians 3.19. It was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator, speaking about Moses. But really fascinating to me, in Psalm 68, verse 17 and 18, the psalmist speaks about the angels' involvement in the law. Listen to this. The chariots of God are twice 10,000, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them, and Sinai is now the sanctuary. He's talking about 10,000 times 10,000 of angels that were involved and active in the giving of the law. And so when he, he says here in Hebrews, the, angels, the, the, the message declared by angels proved to be reliable. Fascinating to me, in Psalm 68, the very next verse talks about Jesus. And we know that because it's quoted in the New Testament. Psalm 67, verse 18, talks about Jesus ascending on high and leading captivity captive. So after talking about the angelic ministry at Mount Sinai, he talks about Christ's ministry in the gospel, a preview of what was to come. So he's saying, be warned about this. 
Then he, comp then he compares and contrasts that with the message of the gospel. He said the message of salvation, this great salvation, this great deliverance that we have, was declared at first by the Lord. In other words, Jesus himself declared the message of salvation. He said at the times like in Luke 19.10, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. He said the, that, that Christ came as a servant to be able to provide redemption. Jesus declared the gospel in his life. Then secondly, he said, it was attested to those, by those that heard, meaning the apostles. So the apostles were sent by Jesus during his lifetime to go out and declare the gospel in the villages and the towns. And after Jesus rose from the dead, they went to the whole world and declared the message of the gospel. So Jesus spoke it, the, the apostles spoke it, and then he said the Holy Spirit attested to it. Check this out. By, by signs, he bore witness by signs, wonders, miracles, and gifts of the Holy Spirit. Why did Jesus perform miracles? Why did the apostles perform miracles? Why were the signs and the wonders done? Why did God give certain spiritual gifts to be able to do miracles? Because that was attesting to the message so that people would say, the power of God is demonstrating this is what's true, this is what's real. Friends, I don't believe we need to continue to have miracles and signs today for what God has already given us here. But we need to understand that the Holy Spirit's presence and power resting upon the apostles was saying, this is the true message of God. In other words, warning, pay attention to this. Warning, don't miss this. So what does that say to us? It tells us that God provides a greater and a better salvation in Christ. God provides something better than even what we have in Moses. We did a study on the book of Exodus recently here at church, and we saw the power of God and the, and the mighty deliverance that came through Moses, didn't we? God, uh, through the plagues on Egypt, showed that he was a true and living God and that every other one of the Egyptian gods wasn't. Through the Passover, he provided deliverance through the shedding of blood. Through the Red Sea, he provided salvation and then brought destruction to the enemies. He provided guidance through the pillar of cloud and fire, manna in the wilderness, water through the rock. God provided amazing salvation in Moses. And yet the author of Hebrews says this, God's provided something even better in Christ, a better salvation that he preached, the apostles shared, and the miracles prove that it is the real thing. So what does that say to us this morning, whether you're listening online or you're here present today? It says this, friend, if you have yet to trust Christ as your only Savior, if you have yet to do a spiritual Michigan U-turn called repentance, if you have yet to really put the full weight of your sin on Jesus and trust him, then friends, warning, doesn't matter your religion, denomination, your baptism, your heritage, doesn't matter. If you haven't put your faith fully in Jesus Christ, you, are, you have the danger of drifting past the only harbor for your soul. So he's saying, warning. And friend, if you haven't trusted Christ, don't assume that you have another chance to do that. Don't assume that you have tomorrow, because the Bible tells us we don't have that. So trust in him today. Repent of your sin and put your faith in him today. Heed that warning. But how about for believers? We need to heed the warning of not neglecting the implications of the gospel for our Christian life. 
Do you realize, friends, that living the Christian life is really taking the gospel and translating it into your daily life? So warning, don't neglect that great salvation you have in Jesus. Make sure as a believer that you're living out the gospel in your life. So after giving us a warning, he then challenges us to wonder. Look at verse 5. Again, he mentions angels. It was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, the new creation of which we're speaking. But it's been testified somewhere, and now he quotes from Psalm 8. What is man that you're mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he that is God left nothing outside his control. At present, we don't see everything in subjection to him. We saw last week that in um, Hebrews chapter 1, the author of Hebrews quoted seven Old Testament passages. Here again, he's quoting the Old Testament and, and, and making his argument, making his point. But he's quoting from Psalm 8. And we're going to put that up on the screen, and I want to read it for you and have you reflect on this. Psalm 8 is a creation psalm. It focuses on creation, but then really focuses on God's creation of man and the role he gives to mankind in creation. So just follow along as I read this for you. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you've established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him? You've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, all the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the path of the sea, and then he ends as he begins. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name, in all the earth. The psalmist focuses on the glory of God in creation and the wonder that we should have when we look at creation. And then he focuses the wonder on what God has done in appointing man over his creation. That's really the, the, the heart of the psalm. Wondering at creation, then wondering at man who's put over creation. Some years ago, when I was pastoring in Grand Rapids a previous time, we took a group of our uh, men and we went up into Canada to Algonquin Provincial Park, which is way north of Toronto. We went on an eight-day canoe trip. We went from the south end of, of the park all the way to the north end. And it was, it was rigorous. It was September when we did that. And we uh, canoed until you felt like your, your arms were going to fall out of your shoulders. And then we portaged until you felt your, your back was never going to recover. And I remember one night when we were actually camping in the middle of that trip, and we were so far from any town or city, and it was a clear September night. There wasn't a cloud in the sky. And you could see a full moon, and you could see stars all over the place. And after dinner, we walked out on this huge boulder that was kind of just overlooking the, the lake below. And we're just standing there as a group of men, and all of a sudden, one of the guys broke out and singing. 
O Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds you've made. I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder, thy power throughout thy universe displayed. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art. There wasn't a dry eye among the men because we were looking up and saying, God, this universe is vast. And as a psalmist did that, he didn't have a telescope. He didn't know how many more stars that were there, how many more galaxies that were there, how many more planets that were there. But he looks up and he says, God, what an awesome, I stand and and just wonder and considering your creation. But then he wonders at this. The psalmist says, what is man? Who am I, this little speck on a speck in the universe? He feels very small and insignificant by comparison to the vastness of the universe. Friends, if you have never done that, then you need to stop and wonder. You need to wonder first at the vastness, the awesomeness, and you can look at that creation and you can look at the atom and the molecule and the cell and see this awesome creator God that we have. But then look in the mirror and say, Who am I that you would say that I matter to you, God? Who am I that this sovereign God would be concerned with puny me? Who am I that this powerful God would be concerned with weak me? Who is God that this all, who is man that this all-knowing God would know my name and the hairs on my head? Who am I? What is man that you're mindful of him? And then he talks about God's design and creation. He said, you made him just a little lower than angels. That's you and me, friends. You have crowned man with glory and honor. You made him in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 as your vice regent over creation, just under angels. You made mankind unique. Friends, don't let anybody tell you that you simply evolved from an amoeba. An awesome creator God designed you personally. And you matter to him. You look at the vastness of the universe and you then look at yourself and say, I wonder at the reality that God cares for me. Every person here today, every child, every adult, no matter how young, no matter how old, no matter how rich, no matter how poor, no matter how high the education or low the education, no matter what you have or what you don't have, no matter if handicapped, doesn't matter, gender, male, female, you matter to God. You matter to God. And we need to wonder at that. We need to stand in awe of that. He's saying mankind is better than angels. You put him under the angels, but but actually we're better than angels. Do you know that the New Testament says that we are actually going to judge angels? 1 Corinthians 6, verse 13. Christians are going to judge angels. Think about that. You're going to get to hang out with Michael and a whole bunch of other angels. You've been made lower than angels, but you're going to someday judge angels. That's what he's saying. Mankind has great significance and great dignity because God has put all things under man's feet. But then look what he says. If you go back to Hebrews chapter 2, after quoting that psalm, he said, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. In other words, there was no part of creation that God didn't put under mankind. No part of it. Beasts, birds, fish, trees, plants, all of it, man was to be, was to care for under God. Now, we've done a pretty lousy job of that for the most part. 
But he said, at present, we don't yet see everything in subjection to him. So at the end of that verse, he's saying, we don't see all of creation now under mankind. We see hurricanes. We see tornadoes. We see earthquakes. We see plagues and diseases. We see volcanoes erupting. We see all of these, we see forest fires. It, it appears that man isn't really ruling over creation very much at all, right? Why? Because after Genesis 1 and 2 comes Genesis 3 and the sin of mankind leading to the curse and the fall. And so now we don't see all things under him. We see the effects of the curse. Matter of fact, Paul in Romans 8 says, all creation groans and travails as in birth pains together till now. What we see is a fallen creation under the curse right now. We don't see all things put under mankind. That's his point. So God created man with his great dignity. And man and his sin, his image got twisted and distorted and all of creation got broken under him. And that's what we see right now. Good news is this. Warning leads to wonder and wonder leads to worship. Look at verse 9. See how he applies and appropriates Psalm 8 to Jesus. He said, we don't see all things in subjection to him. In other words, right now we don't see all of creation under man. But I love verse 9. But we see him. It's interesting how often in the book of Hebrews he's going he's to talk about sight. And, and how we, we see Jesus, we see Jesus, we see Jesus all through, starting with about chapter 10 to, through chapter 13. We see Jesus, we see Jesus, we see Jesus. We don't see all of, all of creation under man, but here's the hope, here's the message of faith, here's the message of the gospel. We see Jesus. Friends, if you just look at yourself, you're going to be disappointed. If you look around at the world, you're going to be really discouraged. But when you look to Jesus, you'll find encouragement and hope. We see Jesus. We don't see all things put under him, but we see Jesus. And we worship him. Because Jesus was made a little, for a little while, temporarily, he was made lower than the angels. You know what that's talking about? It's talking about the Christmas message. Jesus became incarnate. The creator joined with the creation. Jesus, who was seated on high in heaven and glory as the Son of God, became the Son of Man, born of a virgin. Jesus lived on this planet. He actually became a little lower than the angels in his humility, taking upon himself human nature. That's what he's saying. He became, Jesus, a little lower than the angels. And what was the purpose? His, by the way, his name Jesus means the Savior of Jehovah. That's what it means. So great salvation provided in Jesus. When the angel came to um, Joseph and said, call his name Jesus, and he explained it, for he will save his people from their sins. We see Jesus, made a little lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor, crowned with glory and honor, because of the suffering of death. So in other words, we see this, this contrast. Jesus became lower than the angels as incarnation, he went to the cross to be our substitute, suffering and death. And then he became crowned with glory and became crowned with honor. What's that talking about? After his suffering and death, there was the resurrection. By the way, the best news that's ever been heard came out of an empty tomb 
just outside of Jerusalem. He's not here, he is risen. Come see the place where he lay. Listen, friends, the resurrection of Jesus Christ changes everything. It changes everything. His death on the cross means he paid the price for your sin. His resurrection means salvation has been fully provided in him. That's the gospel, that's the good news. Christ's death as our substitute, Christ's resurrection on our behalf, that is good news. And that's what he's talking about. This, we need to worship him because of this great salvation. It says he suffered death, literally he experienced or tasted death for every human being. Friend, I want you to know, not only does God care for you in placing you in this place of dignity over his creation, but God sees the effects of sin on your life and how it twists and distorts and has broken creation. And so Jesus paid the price for sin. He tasted death for everyone. Romans 6.23 says the wages, the payment for sin is death. God told Adam and Eve, the day that you eat, you're going to die. By the way, friends, listen. Death is not cessation of existence. Our culture says when you die, you're done, that's it. The, the, the word death in the Bible never means that. It means separation. Separation of the physical body from the immaterial part of the body. Spiritual death is separation from God. And Jesus entered into death. He, he died a death like no other, taking upon himself all of our sin on the cross. He suffered death for everyone. And he did that. He did that so that we could know forgiveness of sin. And he is now crowned with glory and honor. And later it says that, that we're going to see all things put under his feet. You know, it's interesting. When Jesus walked here on earth, it was the creator walking among creation. Jesus spoke to the wind and waves and stopped the storm. He spoke to dead bodies four times, and they were raised from the dead. He spoke to people who had never walked, and they walked. Blind people never seen, and they saw. Deaf people that never heard, and they heard. He spoke to people that were demonized, and they were delivered. Jesus spoke to creation. He spoke to a fish once to, speak, to pay his taxes. Wouldn't that be fun? Jesus did all of that and showed his authority over creation. And he tasted death for everyone. We're told at the end of verse 9 that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Friends, there's four marks of false religions that you need to be aware of. They get four things wrong consistently. They get the Bible wrong, they get the Trinity wrong, they get Jesus wrong, and they get salvation wrong. False religions always do that. You can, the marks of a false religion, they get the Bible wrong, they get the Trinity wrong, they get Christ wrong, they get salvation wrong. They have some other authority other than the Bible. They do not, re, they reject the reality of the Trinity. And they don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God, Son of Man, and the only Savior and the King of Kings. And they believe that salvation is by their own efforts, by works. My friends, you can never be good enough to save yourself. You can never, you can never do that by your own works. Salvation is by God's grace alone, according to Scripture we're seeing right here in verse 9. It's by grace alone, in Christ alone, through faith alone, according to the Scriptures alone, to the glory of God alone. Salvation is only found in Jesus. It's not in your name. It's not in your family name. It's not in your religion's name. It's not in your philosophy's name. It's in the name of Jesus. Neither is there salvation in any other. There's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. There's not salvation in any other. Friend, don't trust in your name. Don't trust in your denomination. Don't trust in anything other than the name of Jesus. 
So what do we do with this passage? Warning. Warning. Pay attention to the warning by trusting in Christ alone for your salvation. If you've never done that, we have people right back in the prayer room just off to the left there that would love to meet with you and introduce you to how you can trust in Jesus. And, and as believers in Jesus Christ, we need to be heeding the warning to not neglect the implications of salvation for our lives. We need to be amazed in wonder when we look at the stars and then we look at ourselves and we realize what an amazing God that he would care for you individually and me. And we need to worship. We need to worship Jesus because he's the Lamb of God who was slain for us. We need to worship him. Friends, Christ has provided a better salvation. And in that better salvation, he makes a way for you and I to be justified, to be declared righteous before a holy God. He provides for us to be forgiven, to have the debt of our sin canceled. He provides a way for us to, be, to have new life and new birth and regeneration. He adopts us into his family. He redeems us from the slave market of sin. He became the wrath-absorbing sacrifice. He gives us hope beyond death. He made us a new creation. He brought us near. He cleansed us from the defilement of sin. He has now seated us with Christ in heaven and made us an heir with him. He actually changed, you get to change kingdoms, moving from the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of Satan, to the kingdom of his son. That's all in the salvation we have in Jesus. He's given you victory. Death was defeated. Christ has risen. And friends, I want you to know it is a great salvation. There's nothing better. Christ alone is Savior. His salvation alone is what's provided for you. So heed the warning. Stand in wonder and worship our great God. Let's pray together. God, thank you for so great a salvation in Jesus. Thank you that we, though you created us in your image and gave us such dignity and put us in this position over creation. We see how sin has twisted and defiled everything. But we see Jesus who became a man and suffered on the cross and rose from the dead and is now seated in the glory of heaven and will come again to set up his kingdom on this earth. God, I pray for any that have not yet trusted him. Oh, God, would you plant in their heart genuine, transforming faith in Jesus. And for every believer that is here, may we find the source of our joy and our confidence in the good news message of Jesus. God, may we heed the warning of your word. May we stand at wonder when we see your creation. And may we worship the one who is worthy of worship, the Lamb of God upon his throne. In Jesus' name, amen.